Episode 7! Alright, I know what that voice is, but it's episode 7. I'm trying to sound like more dynamic than I feel like I've sounded before. My voice is my voice. Listen, we have no choice unless we change it. Yeah, I rhymed those two uh, words before. On purpose, um, we're not stumbling at all. It's Sunday night, but uh, not that late. Not late enough for that excuse. Uh, Let's get going. Alright guys, thank you for tuning in. It's episode 7 of Two Books a Month with Anthony Santino. It's Sunday night at 8.52pm and I just finished Hitting a Straight Lick with a Crooked Stick by Zora Neale Hurston. Like I said, she's presumably dead because she was born in like the 19th century. So, you know, I think that would check out. Um, Anyway, I don't know if that's relevant or not, but, but, I I wrote a joke that I've been doing for the last few weeks where... uh, the girl, there's a girl that I'm talking to in the story that's like half true, and she goes, but, but, she says, but, a lot, so um, it's stuck in my head. But anyway, uh, Hitting a Straight Lick with a Crooked Stick, a collection of short stories by Zora Neale Hurston. She was a Harlem Renaissance writer. I feel like I've come across her before, but it's really a subconscious effort on that end, because uh, I don't remember. I just remember seeing her name. Um, the artwork of the book is beautiful, at least the version I got. Um, the edition I got, if we're going to use real jargon here, uh, it was cool. I'm not going to lie. Like I told you, I came out of the gate slow. Uh, this was obviously the second week of the book. Uh, I, uh, the first week I got it on like Tuesday or Wednesday in the mail and then, you know, I didn't even read that much that I read about 40 to 50 pages in the first week. You know, it was like, it's 232 count we're dealing with. So, uh, I had some catching up to do. But I did it. I, I hit it hard certain days. Uh, and, you know, listen, some of these stories, um, you know, I bought it with the diluted promise thinking like, oh, you know, these are going to be Harlem Renaissance stories. And I wanted to read about some Metropolis tings. But, uh, you know, look, she uh, she was from Eatonville, Florida. Uh, you know, I think, you know, black, black place, black neighborhood of her time, whatever. Um, that was a weird way of putting it. But you get what I'm saying. Um, and yeah, no, listen, it it was great. There were enough city stories that fulfilled me, but also sneakily, I was really happy with the Florida stories. Cause look, no disrespect to Florida or anything, you know, Florida's got its stuff, but I, and I like some Floridians. I know some Floridians, they're cool people. Some of them are cool. Most all the ones I know are cool. You know, the ones we see in the news, like aren't cool, but the ones I know are cool. Um, I'll put it that way, you know? Uh, yeah. So anyway, back to Zora, she was from Eatonville, Florida, then like migrated North. Uh, she went to Barnard. I think she was like the first black female student at Barnard. She's, we're, we're dealing with trailblazers only on this podcast is all I'm trying to say, you know? Um, yeah, I'm going to do a little flip through. Let me see if you can hear this. Look, listen, all right. That's like a weak flip through, but you could, you could, you get the effect. Um, I really, I really enjoyed it. I, I not going to lie. I read like half of the forward and then I was like, I don't need to hear about, you know, what she ate for breakfast. I was like, I'm going to get right to the stories. So past the intro, let me see what the first story here is. Uh, I won't do too much of this, by the way. Oh, by the way, let me just plug it quick. I'm, I'm already like three minutes in the pod. Uh, I've got a conversation with Matt Caputo, Matt Caputo, guy I know from Queens, uh, slash Brooklyn slash New York city at large. Uh, Great writer, good friend. Haven't seen him in a long time, but, you know, we keep track on social. Um, he's been doing a lot of cool work. Uh, he's back writing. Uh, he, he, he wrote for a long time for publications like Slam Magazine, uh, Penthouse, you know, to name just a few, New York Daily News. 
Um, he's done some great reporting in the trenches. Uh, lately, he's been doing a lot of work in the hockey scene. He's a big hockey guy. Um, he's working on something very special we're going to talk about. Uh, he's also got a uh, he's got an article out in Connecticut Magazine for the March issue. Um, we're going to talk all about that, me and Matt. Uh, hopefully, you're listening to this and hear me plugging it, because usually I plug the writer or slash guest really early, and I didn't do that this time. I kind of failed. You fail sometimes in life. All good, all good, all good. Oh, man. All right, back to the Zora book. Let me just give a quick quick overview of some of the stories I liked, and then I'll F off, and we'll talk. We'll get to Matt Caputo. Um, man, so John Redding Goes to Sea is the first story. In this book, listen, I read this story at like 11 a.m. before I headed out for work one day. This was, uh, I wouldn't say a tearjerker. I didn't cry, but uh, it was kind of depressing in a beautiful and sweet way. You know, it's kind of about this queer child uh, who's very respectful. His dad is really kind to him, but his mom thinks he's got like a curse on him. We're talking like 1920s, 1930s. Uh, I'm sure there's still some parents who are not understanding of their queer children, but you know what? I think times are getting better. I hope, you know. Um, Anyway, John Redding was a queer boy, and uh, his dad was nice to him, and his mom thought he had, like, a witch curse on him, and she would just kind of, like, bemoan and begrudge him and whatever, and he was just a sweet, sweet boy, you know? Grew up to be a strong young man. Uh, He had, like, a girlfriend or a wife. They were very close. You know, he, he was in love with the woman but wanted to see the world. That was the kind of the underlying theme. He really wanted to see the world. He had big dreams. Small, small town, swamp, <clears throat> you know, lived on a river, had big dreams, wanted to get out. Um, but he was respectful. He wanted his mother's wishes, and she didn't want him to go, but, you know, whatever. There, there was a lot to that story. I don't want to unpack the whole thing. I want you to read this book. That's what I want you to do. I don't have a stake in the Zora Neale Hurston estate or anything, but... Um, you know, I was like, I re- I've been reading a lot of guys, uh, books and I need to read a woman's book. And, uh, I was very happy. I did the conversion of Sam. That's another good one. That was right after, um, Magnolia flower. That was good. Black death. Uh, there are a lot of good stories in this. Mutsy. Mutsy was good. The uh, Mutsy was actually like very, very good. Um, look, look at me just being so detailed. Yeah, I'm just naming stories and saying, oh, how good was this? Uh, all right. Well, you know, that's what we do sometimes. Um, what I will say, there's like two or three instances in this book where it's kind of like a, laid out like a parable, but like broken up into sections and like fragments. Uh, some of these, it's a story. I don't know. Uh, I don't like that too much. A, a Book of Harlem, yeah. It's, like, cool, and, you know, th- it just feels like you're kind of all over the place. Um, it's it's kind of biblical, but without any form of uh, cohesion or organization. Uh, it's just kind of, like, numbered, you know. I, I'm sure this is, like, a form. It's not iambic pentameter. I'm just trying to convey to you that it's something uh, that I'm unfamiliar with. Anyway, you get past the Book of Harlem, and there's some, like, really good stuff. Um the Gilded Six Bits, that's a good one. All right, basically, guys, look, I'm not doing a good job of painting a picture of this book, but uh, a lot of pictures are painted in the book. Zora does a good job of capturing primarily the African-American experience, the black experience of the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. You know, obviously, she talks about history, you know, before that a little bit. Uh, but, man, there is a futurism, a modernism to this woman um, and what the way she saw the world, her lens... Uh, is really crisp. She holds you on the edge of your seat. 
you know, the, uh, I, I like the stories that, you know, they build in a way where you don't feel like things linger, you know, there aren't run-ons, it, the, things just kind of move in a way you'd want them to move, um, so I'll tip my cap to it, happy I finished it in time, um, man, not that this has to do with books, but, uh, now, nah, you know, I'm not going to touch on that, it has nothing to do with me, uh, I'm, I'm going to leave that alone, people are talking about that enough, uh, <laughs> just, culture stuff. You you know how it goes. What I'll say about me is today, just on a, on a personal note, uh, wasn't feeling great today. I don't know. You know I, I like do know why I'm, I put pressure on myself uh, like most humans. Um, I've been working. I've, I've been enjoying my uh, stand-up. You know, part of it is like tennis has been slower. You know, I teach tennis and platform tennis to make money. Uh, gives me good flexibility, but it's been slow. Like people been canceling on me. Uh, you know, the kids, kids have been sick. It's all been valid, like real stuff, you know, but then people, they just, you know, and nice people too, nice people. But you know, it's just like, you know, people been canceling, they come back from vacation. Uh, and it's not all their fault. Like I like to take responsibility for things. You know, if I set myself up better, if I had like, if I taught more indoor tennis, you know, maybe I'd be making more money these last two months. But but, but, like the girl in my joke, callbacks, you know, uh, but, uh, the weather's breaking this week. I'm going to have some tennis mixed in again. So I'll have a little bit of paddle left. Tennis season's usually busy. That'll be cool. Uh, hopefully, you know, I I've been enjoying comedy. I've been building my act. I take it seriously. You know, it's its own underworld, like anything else, you know, some people, uh, are too confident. Some aren't confident enough in how good they are. Um, you know, I think on a whole, like individually, you meet a lot of good people, but then in the communal setting, you know, some, some rooms are weird vibes, but overall I love when I'm up there. I love being up there. I love exploring the room. I like the awareness that, you know, it's not always about you. Like when you're feeling like you don't, you're not delivering, you know, sometimes it is you and sometimes it is me more specifically, but sometimes I know that like, you know, look, it's just not your room, you know? If you're performing in front of seven people and two or three of them like your stuff and are laughing, it do- that's a good percentage, but it doesn't feel like it. That's why I want like, I want to perform in rooms with more people, you know? I'm, I'm looking forward, I'm doing a couple of showcase kind of shows in a couple of weeks. I have a bunch of friends coming out and um, I think those rooms will be a little more packed out. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Um, and I just, I do really enjoy that thing. And the thing is, I'm primarily a writer, uh, but doing stand-up brings me out of my shell a little bit. Look, I'm a social being, like, when I have to. When I'm there and I'm in the thing of, like, people are around, you know, I could talk and no no problem with that. Well, you know, listen, I have problems with it sometimes, depending, but, uh, yeah, listen, I, I hold, you know, a level of respect to everybody, you know, who reciprocates, and I mean, just even people who don't reciprocate respect, I'm just putting it out there, you kill them with kindness, you know, if you don't like them, you just kill them with kindness, why not, I think it's more fun, it's almost funny in, in, in its own way, um, anyway, there's a lot of good people out there, uh, I've been enjoying the comedy scene, I, I want to go harder though, you know, sometimes I'll do two spots a night, sometimes I'm just doing one though, I gotta do more than one, I gotta do at least two, if not three, I gotta go harder, uh, I think we could always go harder, I actually saw something today, um, look, we need to relax. We need to enjoy ourselves and take life in for sure. And I, I do that, but, um, I forgot, you know, I don't know the specific quote, but 
somebody was saying, you know, I, I, it was something on Instagram, to be honest. It might be somebody listening to this podcast who posted it. Um, but they said, like, when you're old, do you want to look back and think you half-assed it? You know, obviously, that's something we always talk about. Just don't half-ass it, yada, yada, yada. Uh, I feel full after the risotto. But, you know, really, when I it hit me today when I read that. I was like, look, you know, there are times where it feels like life's overwhelming. And uh, I'm like, I need to, like, just, you know sleep to like forget about life we'll go to bed early or take a nap when I'm off or something and you know just look that's fine but you know at the same time I think I need to go into overdrive uh in certain ways you know yeah I'm diligent I'm I'm early to things I'm not late I don't slack when I'm working but as far as like the work I'm doing for myself I feel like uh Look at this diatribe I'm going on. Who, who am I talking to? Probably not a lot of people, but some people. So if you're still listening, thanks for being tuned in at the 12 minute and 58 second mark. I th- all right, now we're at 13.02. I lagged a little bit. But you know what? Look, 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 look. Uh, I made a water guzzling sound. Look, look, look. Okay. Uh, <laughs> all right. Um, but that that's the vibe. Look, I overall, I feel fine. Today was just a weird day. Yeah, I think... Uh, yeah, I was gonna. I wasn't gonna talk about that. That's uh, has nothing to do with me. Um, wild day. It, you know, a lot of things are wild. I mean, the guy stabbed the people at the MoMA. Um, I was writing a joke today. I was like, you know, I'd be like, man, you know, they did the right thing, you know, because the guy was. I think they kicked him out of the MoMA a lot for different incidents, and then they sent him a letter saying that uh, his membership was terminated. So he came in and retaliated with a uh, with a knife. Um, and you know, I was going to make, uh, hopefully there, those people have survived. Uh, I've got to check the news. If they survive, I'm going to make a joke. Like, you know, they did the right thing, but all I know is if it was me behind the desk, you know, I, I would have let him go in. Um, and I've been like, you know, he could have taken starry night on his way out. You know, I would have put a Rembrandt in a to-go box. I don't know. Uh, we'll see how that plays. Hopefully they survive and I'll make that joke in that case. If not, I will not out of respect. Look, you know, trying to be silly, but you hold, I hold some respect. I don't go too crazy. I'm not one of those flying around making 9-11 jokes. Uh, although, listen, I laugh when they're good, you know? I, I don't, you know, look, look, barometers, you know? Um, all right, all right, all right, all right. Without further ado, um, are we spelling that A-D-O or A-D-I-E-U? I don't know, however you want to spell ado. Uh, Freddie Adu was a soccer player, is alive, I'm sure. Um, unlike Zora Neale Hurston, uh, just kidding. She is living eternally. Queen, 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 queen. All right. King of Queens, Kevin James. All right. Um, without further ado, it's actually 15 minutes now. That's a nice little number to have me stop talking. Let me get to my conversation with Matt Caputo. <laughs> Thanks, the blue light glasses, man. All right. Oh, yeah. Um, we're on. We're recording. I am joined by Matt Caputo. That's how you say it. You say Caputo, right? Or yeah, Caputo. Caputo. Yeah, yeah. Caputo. Yeah, yeah, cool. I am with Matt. I gave him a bad intro already, but listen, I'm on with Matt Caputo. He is a writer. He's a lot of things, man. This guy's got a lot of writing experience under his belt. He's worked for, I know you've, you've worked with like Men's Health, right? Like you've worked with the Daily News. Worked at the you've Daily News. I uh, worked, worked at Men's a lot of Fitness problems. at one point. Fitness, sorry, sorry. There were uh, so many, it all gets, yeah, you know. It was uh, Alphabet Soup at one point, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
No, but the Matt's uh, Matt's done a lot of great work in the journalism world. He's a great writer. Uh, one of the things, one of the most recent things he's done, he's written an extensive article for Connecticut magazine called "Is This Heaven?" No, it's Danbury Hockey. Uh, he uh, he's been doing a lot of cool stuff. You're a big hockey guy, right, Matt? Um, I think by default, I I became a big hockey guy. Uh, if uh, kind of that. Um, Kind of my entry into maybe journalism at some point was reading the hockey news. I used to get it at a newsstand on Grand Avenue in Queens. And I think that probably starting around, it's just funny because it, 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 it took me in that direction. One of the first magazine stories I remember reading uh, was a fantastic story by Scott Reb uh, in GQ. And it was about hockey in Flint, Michigan. And it was republished a few years ago on Deadspin's website. And if people are interested in it, but, um, you know, that was about 1995 or six. I was only 11 or 12 years old. And I remember finding a copy of it at my uncle's barbershop in Williamsburg. And that, after that, a couple of years later, there was a great story in the hockey news uh, about like a sadistic goon that was roaming the minor leagues at the, at that point. And for whatever reason, uh, all the stories connected to hockey through the years, um, I picked up with it again around 2009. And I, I've just, uh, I've oddly uh, gotten a lot of mileage out of, out of hockey and a lot of the stories connected to it. And this, this, this story is an example of that for sure. And uh, I know you. I read some stuff on you, and uh, one of the anecdotes you've mentioned to me as well is uh, out of college, or at least when maybe when you're in college, were you at Purchase at the time? I was. And you, yeah, what was yeah, I and you. Re- I think you reached out. You said you reached out to a lot of publications about work, and uh, what was it World uh, World Boxing Di- or Boxing Digest? Yes. They reached back to you for an assignment, and uh, were you a boxing person, or did you just jump on it to get some writing work? Um. Well, I had kind of emailed them because I, I did enjoy boxing. I never really participated in it that much. But um, my uncle was a big boxing fan, and my dad was kind of interested in it. I remember my dad had uh, he had taped Tyson Douglas. He had taped it the night that it happened, and he came home and he watched it like all night or something like that. So we had some interest in boxing in the family. And I had gotten that opportunity by a guy by the name of Greg Juckett, who was running that magazine. It was a tiny little thing uh, that was, he was actually working at a company where he was publishing cosmetic magazines alongside oh, wow. the boxing magazine in the office. So it was like this pet project that he was allowed to operate um, where he ran these kind of, uh, they were kind of trade publications for the cosmetic industry. And, uh, that made my first couple of bucks uh, doing journalism. I went up to a, a boxing camp in Cahunxin, New York. It looked like something out of a Rocky movie. And uh, I interviewed Monty Barrett there. He was a heavyweight from Queens. I'm sure uh, some members of your family know Monte, uh, Anthony. And um, I did a lot of stuff back then for Boxing Digest. So it was a really kind of... Uh, just a chance kind of a reply to my email that kind of got me working. It was kind of 
it was kind of like I had less and less time to party and stuff once I got involved with stuff like that. Although I, I, I snuck in a fair amount of partying and uh, all the rest. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm a big basketball head and I like music a lot. I saw also uh, in one of your bios that you, you, wrote, you wrote for The Source and for Slam Magazine, right? I did. I wrote um, right out of college. I had gotten an internship at The Source. There were some nice, uh, some good people working up there, uh, a couple of good editors, and uh, I got a chance to work there for, for a couple of months. I, I did, I don't know if you remember the rapper, Anthony, Uncle Murder. I did the first story in The Source. I know of him. I haven't heard it, like much of his stuff. With I Uncle, saw, yeah, he what had, about Uncle Murder? Yeah, yeah he, he, I, I did a phone interview with him. Uh, it was kind of funny, like his, his manager answered the phone, and I could hear him in the background. His manager was like, hey, it's The Source on the phone. And he's like, they want to interview you. And you can hear Uncle Murder say, what do they want to interview me about? And he's like, it's what they do. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, 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 you uh, see the, the, the curtain peeled back on yeah, these people and their you know, regular day. You know? Yeah, it was in the middle. But um, had a lot of cool experiences up there. But I eventually moved on to Harris Publications, and they own Slam. And after, nice. And after working at a men's magazine for a while, uh, King, some people may remember it. It was a pretty good magazine. Uh, the stuff we were putting into it, it was, it was kind of going for the urban maxim type of a market. And, uh, after I left the magazine had the plug pulled, but I worked then at slam and it was great. It was just two years of, uh, really getting involved at least just for me in some of the magazine writing that I'd always wanted to do in college and, uh, kind of, in those early years, just starting out when I had like no possessions and uh, kind of kind of lived do off. You, pizza. Do you have like a favorite interview from Slam that you remember, or is there too like too many experiences thrown together to like pick one out? Um, you know, I I gotta be honest with you, Anthony. Everything I did at Slam was special for me because we, you know, at my house, uh, we were a big, we were really a bigger basketball family than any other sport, and. Uh, you know, my brother uh, eventually became a college basketball coach, and we had a neighbor who, a couple doors down, who was a college basketball coach. In those days, everybody played basketball. It wasn't like when you were in high school, and they started with the lacrosse team, and then this, no, there was nothing. You were yeah, on yeah. the basketball team, or you were just you know, facing the crowd in New York City, and yeah. uh, and I think that we we got the first ever issue of Slam at our house one time. It was it was unbelievable that I remember. There's a chair in my my mother's uh, living room, you know, the Italian living room with no TV. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, I remember kind of being a very small ten year old, kind of reading the magazine, like on my knees at that chair. And uh, the, it was a it was a uh, it was certainly an experience. My favorite interview at Slam. It's hard to say. There was a lot of stuff that went on. I mean, I don't know how long the podcast you, you want to make it, but a lot of stuff happened in that time. Uh, certainly, yeah. um, my favorite story that I did at Slam was it happened after I left Slam and I was kind of more in the freelance space with them. Uh, I did a story with the former uh, NBA big man, Keith Kloss, and he was... Uh, 
Now, he had struggled for a long time with alcohol and substance abuse issues while he was in the NBA, and he admitted to me that he drank on the bench and he smoked weed in the parking lot at halftime of, of games. I mean, this was when there was no social media, no camera phones. Yeah. You know, so it all, you know, according to him, it was true, and uh, I, I would believe it. You know what I mean? He, he, he seemed genuine about what he was trying to say, but uh, just the time I got to spend with him, uh, kind of proved to me that you, you didn't necessarily need to have like a like a super famous like you know Drake or or whoever you know type of a subject. It, it really just it was a matter of spending a time with someone and getting them to express to you their own thoughts and feelings that that made a good story. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, that's the thing is like when you get to the core of a person, like everybody's got a story. Some are just more communicative or out there than others. But if you could pull their story out of them in an organic way, you know, that's that's a special talent. And I'd imagine like you just said, kind of like going back to your childhood growing up, you know, New York and basketball are like synonymous with each other. We have like the most famous arena on the planet. You know, some of the biggest tournaments, Big East tournaments going on right now while we're talking, I think. Yes. Um, so, yeah, you had to feel proud working for that publication. And, uh, you know, a- after that, um, yeah. Oh, I saw also, do you, so you interviewed Jay Leno as well? Cause I, I started doing comedy. So I'm, I'm interested in that, how that went. I never interviewed Jay Leno. What happened was I did a cover story for Men's Fitness about Vin Diesel. And Jay Uh, Leno held the magazine up and talked about something that uh, Vin Diesel had said to me in the interview process. We we did an interview uh, at Canyon Ranch in L.A. But it was crazy because, you know, um, my my family, my friends, uh, my my uh, 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 you know, my family, my friends, my brother posted it on Instagram, Leno holding up the. I mean, it was a really proud moment for me. I, I had never done many cover stories up until that point. It's something that I was always kind of in, in the, inside the inside the feature well, as we used to call it, kind of a guy. So, like, uh, I would do the, the offbeat story that was kind of behind the cover story. You know what I mean? And so I had done that that story with Vin Diesel, and that's what led to that. It was, uh, it was a little... You know, it was a long time ago now. It, it, it happens for a second. It really means nothing. But it was a cool experience, uh, nevertheless. Men's Fitness was an interesting place to work at that time because we had assumed the leadership of men's health. So the guys, uh, David Zinsenko and uh, uh, these guys came over and they, they – they then were in charge of men's fitness and they, they turned it into a award winning magazine at the time. So it was cool. It was kind of cool to work there. Nice. Well, I mean, you've had an extensive writing career already and you have many years to go on it, I'm sure. Um, so at the moment, like we were talking, we touched on earlier, you know, you've been doing a lot of work uh, around ho- the, in the hockey scene, but specifically the Danbury hockey scene. Uh, what, uh, what was the first time that you wrote about the Danbury hockey scene? When was that? Well, Indirectly, what happened was in about 2009, I was working at the Daily News, and I I had made friends with this fan, really fantastic uh, Burroughs editor by the name of Bruce Diamond. Uh, he was really one of the first editors that, that, you know, he saw my enthusiasm and, and he wanted to help me turn enthusiasm into potential, you know, and, and uh, I think he worked with me a lot. 
And one of the very first things we did together was, you know, I had, I had kind of been pitching anything just to get my name in the paper at the time. I was working a miserable job at night from 7 p.m. till about 3 in the morning at the Daily News. Uh, it was a tough job, and it wasn't made for everybody, and it really wasn't for me. But, I, I, you know, I, I just had a passion for writing. I was a writer more than I was anything at the time. Uh, so what I did was he had tapped me on the shoulder, and he was like, hey, there's this, you know, we were talking about this new semi-professional hockey team. Or we were calling it a minor league team, you know, uh, that was going to be playing at Aviator in Brooklyn at the time. And it was taking the place of a team that had played one season before. So I went down there. I, had, I hadn't skated in a decade at the very minimum. I had just turned 25 years old when I started the job. Uh, so I, I hadn't skated in a long time. I didn't play in high school or anything like that. I played growing up, up until like seventh or eighth grade. And then it was kind of something I put on the side, didn't really deal with. Um, I had no equipment. The day, the, the tryout was on a Sunday and on Saturday before I went to work, uh, um, my buddy drove me all over Brooklyn and Queens, and I pieced together equipment like the crappiest. I had like fifty dollars skates. It was just terrible. <laughs> and 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 uh, I went out there and I skated with these guys. And what I kind of learned was that um, starting with the Danbury Trashers that that are now most most famous from the the Netflix documentary Crimes and Penalties that's out right now. It's been going for a long time. I mean, they, they've revitalized that brand and they've brought a lot of good attention to Danbury. Um, you know, starting with them, there became this scene there for people in town who wanted to attend games. And at this point, when I found out it was going on, which was 2009, the economy was so in the bed that, you know, it, Danbury really couldn't be part of a of a like a like a well established league, so they kind of always had to be part of these kind of startup fly by night leagues, and that's what I tried out for in Brooklyn that day. Yeah, and that league in Brooklyn folded. That that's a whole other story, and and that'll be in the project that uh, that I'd like to tell you more about. But um, you know, I realized that. For a few years around that time too, the 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 team that was called the Danbury Whalers they they relaunched as the Danbury Whalers. So they were like not only bringing hockey back to Danbury, but they were bringing the Whalers logo back to Connecticut. And ultimately, um, every great guy, logo by the way, oh, incredible! The, the the Whalers are still one of the best, and I think everybody even that that is a fan of the Rangers, Islanders, Devils, and Bruins. I think everybody loves it still, you know, that, that new, that, you know, fans of teams that played against the Whalers and, and, and other teams. But they bring back the Whalers logo, and it's, you know, it's, it's a pretty decent rock'em sock'em hockey with a lot of physicality, a lot of interesting players. So once I realized this, I kind of started pitching around, you know, to be quite honest with you, I started pitching around a, a magazine story in a similar mode to the one I had written in GQ by Scott Reb in 1995. 
uh, or so. So this was 2014, I want to say, that I ended up actually getting a story published about Danbury Hockey. So that was in Penthouse Magazine. The problem was, was that, you know, it, it was a good piece and I put together a lot of good info. Nobody had really done many magazine pieces on them. Uh, certainly not taking a look at it from different angles, uh, soci- sociological angles and, you know, just kind of business angles. And uh, listen, it was a well-received story, but the problem was, was, you know, Penthouse was, a, was basically a porno mag. And yeah. I basically had to photocopy it out just to send people what I was doing at the time. And it was wrapped yeah. in plastic. So really, uh, that was the first time I did it. It was a well-received story. It's still kind of famous up there in Danbury among the people who – I republished it on my own website. But uh, it's still kind of famous in Danbury among the people who knew it existed, knew I was there that weekend. I spent three days there uh, – I mean, it was intense because I we really hung around all weekend. We drove to the we drove to the hotel where the visiting team was. We inspected their bus that just looked absolutely dangerous. Like we couldn't figure out how these guys had driven from Ohio. In yeah, this, yeah. Like in this it's a rough bus. and tumble life, they these uh, minor league hockey guys lead, right? Yeah, I mean, a lot of these guys had had kind of gotten to high highs. Um, for that particular piece, they had guys on the team that had uh, been very high up in the Boston Bruins organization. They had a guy, it, you know, it was independent hockey at this point. They were not affiliated. Uh, they were Danbury's never been affiliated with anybody, but uh, you know, they had guys that played at Boston uh, Boston University at the time. For you know. You know, it's a lot, a lot of fringe guys from D1 hockey and stuff like that that end up down there and guys that don't quite uh, get all the way to the top in, in minor league hockey but make a career of it and they look for a way to transition out. Kind of like the Long Island Ducks. Yeah. Somewhat similar, except it's not, not quite MLB-level players up there. You know, it's, 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 these are young guys that are coming from small schools. and uh, Yeah, guys like on the fringes in one way or another. Some of them could – Go and rise go somewhere, up, but depending, yeah, yeah maybe. Yeah. And some guys coming down, just like transitioning out of hockey, is the way you put it. Yeah, depending. The, the, on this level, it, it's like I was. Uh, I tried to capture it in this 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 new piece that I uh, was able to do for Connecticut Magazine, where um, the fans themselves are the ones that really keep this whole tradition going, and it really starts with obviously coming to games and supporting the team on that level, but then it just goes deeper and deeper. You know, a lot, a lot of the fans at this level, they buy snacks and drinks for the players for when they go on the road. They they invite them to their homes for different holidays. They, you know, they, they very much participate in being a fan of Danbury hockey in a family type of a way. It's it's very inclusive. I mean, there's 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 a lot of different people that do come down and support the team, and I I um I think that there's something very important to capture about how people live life at that level. Um, you know, there's there's been really uh you know there's been really touching stories. Just some of the guys have had, you know, uh, 
you know, just players show up at their birthday party. Some of these fans, they were just random fans. A whole group of players will show up at their birthday party. Uh, then they'll have, um, you know, for example, uh, one story that's not in the magazine piece, but will be in hopefully the, the book that we're working on now. Uh, you know, a guy up there who actually designed all of Danbury's logos uh, through the years is a great uh, artist and illustrator by the name of Dominic uh, Alessandro. But he has a son that has, uh, he has some special needs. And one day at the rink, one of the players who was from some faraway part of Canada and playing in Danbury, one of that player's um, parents came up to Dom, recognized that uh, Dom's son uh, had uh, some of these special needs and said, hey, you know, my, we have a son in Canada who's special needs. Also, I'm, I'm not here to look after my son, the hockey player. But he's like, if you, if you could invite my son out, you know, maybe uh, say hello to my son, keep an eye on him for me. And, uh, you know, if, there, if there's anything that he needs, I'll be in touch with you. So it was, a, it was really touching to see the type of connections that people make uh, on that level because it's, uh, in some ways it's a great equalizer. It's a yeah. place where, um, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a place where everybody gets to come and, and take pride not only in the city, but the team. Yeah. Well, it's cool, you know, at that level, and especially the way they do it, where it is so communal, the way it seems both from your article and, you know, I watched the Trashers uh, documentary on Netflix, sure, which was yeah. unbelievable. Um, yeah. But it's great because it's like, it's a great number of people. It's like, it's not a herd, like 40,000 people in city field. It might be a few hundred to a few thousand, but you can almost name everybody. If you're a regular, you know, that's what it seems. It feels like it has that kind of atmosphere to it, you know? Well, I think that's one of the things that, that makes it so special is that you see the same faces over and over. And that's exactly why I chose to start the, the recent Connecticut Magazine piece with kind of an overview of who was there. Because if you went there and you went one time, you could find most of those people standing in those spots. You know, um, you could find Joe Trench in Section 102. You could find Ed Lockwood pressed up against the penalty box. You could find Brenda and Greg uh, sitting in the space where... Uh, Brenda has, has that access that she needs for her wheelchair. So um, it's been like that since since probably forever, but it's definitely been like that in the seven years that I've been traveling back and forth, uh, maybe not seven years straight, but you know, maybe five of the last seven years. Uh, I've, I've taken notes and I've, um, I've contacted people. I've interviewed folks. And, uh, like I said, it's, it, it, it's something that when I started to read some other books, uh, I mean, the first one that always comes to mind is a fantastic book by a writer named Jason Cohen called Zamboni Rodeo. And it's, it's a great book about minor league hockey in, in, in a changing Austin, Texas of the nineties. 
yeah. in, the, in the old Western Pro League. And it's he's a fantastic writer. He had experience with Rolling Stone and, and other places, I believe. But uh, it really takes a look at the lives of the players there and how, you know, for a lot of these kids, maybe some of them grew up in, in rural Canada. They never thought they'd have a chance to play pro hockey until these kind of rough and tumble down south leagues started. And all of a sudden, they're, they're stars in a localized kind of a way. And uh, I, I was really inspired by that book. There's another book uh, by a fantastic writer named Neil Carlin called uh, Slouching Toward Fargo. And uh, it's about the St. Paul Saints baseball team that's owned by Bill Murray and the, oh, fam- yeah. and the family that once owned the Chicago White Sox that had that big disco inferno disaster thing, I think it was, right? Um, so that was another book where kind of the everyday lives of the people around the uh, uh, the people around the story and the fact that I mean on every couple of pages there's just like the, a great scene with Bill Murray where he's absolutely hysterical in a in a in a cinematic kind of a way and uh, it's what makes the book great and then obviously uh, you know Friday Night Lights by Buzz Bussinger uh, or Buzz Bissinger is uh, it's just a beautiful book, and uh, yeah. it's, it's it's similar to what I what I would want to do, just in the just in the capturing uh, of of the space and place of the story. So, I mean, we mentioned these books, and you touched on it, but you're uh, can you confirm or deny that you're working on a book right now on hockey or something else? I yeah, I'm gonna confirm that that I am uh, working on a book project about Danbury hockey. We are in the early stages. I have. Some of the work done, I am using my time in the Western Connecticut State um, University uh, MFA program in creative writing to um, really just, you know, for me, I kind of had taken a few years off where I wasn't doing it as full time as I am now again. And for me, joining the program was not an excuse to do the book doing the book was an excuse to do the program so i was always always kind of interested in doing an mfa i knew i wanted to do a book um and i just there's uh there are some fantastic uh teachers up there that i've already worked with uh one guy named anthony dieris who's uh just a fantastic uh memoirist and short story writer and uh some other really good instructors, instructors, uh, some other really good instructors, Eric Afghan and John Roach. Uh, it's just been great being involved in the program, and it's kind of being involved in a in kind of a, being involved in a boot camp or a train camp type of a situation. You're you're working on stuff, you're on deadlines, and and for me it was great because uh, I would like to get into writing and publishing longer work. And uh, I've, I've fortunately so far, we're moving in the right direction with that. Nice. Well, um, I know you've been doing all this work. Uh, 
You you mentioned to me when we were talking the other day, you know, I think was it yesterday that was the uh, 50th anniversary of uh was it Mario Puzo public, the publication of the uh the Godfather novel? Yeah, I mean the biggest thing I I guess I wanted to say about that was you know, Mario Puzo wrote so many good books uh and I think his first two were pretty well received but he published The Godfather when he was 49 years old. I don't think that it's, um, you know, I don't think it's unusual for people to see success that late. And I, and I also think that it's just a matter, a matter of actually doing the work and getting the work out there and getting it done and trying to get published and trying to hold yourself to the highest level that you could be on, I think, at times with writing. And I think that I think that that's what's resonated with me uh, uh, about Puzo's legacy as we look at the 50th anniversary of The Godfather. I mean, he, he was very prolific. He went on to win two Oscars for uh, co-screenwriting uh, the two films. They're, they're both basically... Uh, both of those films contain elements of the first Godfather... Uh, of the only Godfather book. Both films contain elements of the one book. So... Um, yeah, it, it was just something that interesting um, that crossed my path recently was that uh, he's and I was and I noticed that he was buried on Long Island and I feel like I should go say a prayer or I might bring some cannolis or flowers or something. I like that. Yeah, man. As a writer, I, I see you as a pilgrimage guy. You'll visit the sites that need to be visited. I which I like that. Listen, you're you're connected to the natural world and the page alike. You know. Yeah. Um, something I'm curious about. Obviously, I know about a lot of what you've done in your adult life as a writer. Were you a writer as a kid or was this something that developed more when you were like deeper into adolescence and college and things like um, that? When, like, when know, did that love get fostered, I guess? I always had, I always had an interest in writing. Uh, probably starting out, like, I think, like I said, to be honest, uh, probably right around 11 or 12, a vague interest started when I read that, it's crazy because I ended up meeting Scott later in life. Uh, and uh, the craziest thing, I, I have a crazy long Scott Rabb story that maybe we'll talk about another time, but I ended up meeting Scott later in life. And the craziest thing was, I guess I was just, you know, a little older and a little, uh, had so much going on in my mind at the time that I didn't even really connect him as being the writer of that story until years later. And uh, we met. We met when he was training to fight a woman named Ann Wolf, and write a piece about it uh, for Esquire magazine. It was a charity event they were going to be doing together, and um, you know, Scott was one of the top magazine writers at the time, writing for Esquire. Everybody loved him. Every you know, uh, you know, I, I probably won't say the names of the guys, but I. I you know, sometimes I talk to an established writer and I mentioned that I knew him and, you know, everybody says he's the greatest, you know, he's the greatest writer. So what was, what was funny was probably around when I read that piece in my uncle's barbershop that I really say, hey, this is something interesting. This is a job. It's the, the person's job is to go to the place and bring back the story, whatever it was. And in that particular case, I think it's definitely what's led me to what uh, I've 
done on Dan Belly hockey with these, you know, with this, especially with this piece in Connecticut magazine, it was a lot more about the fans and, uh, and what the book will hopefully be like. Yeah, no, that's actually, dude, I'm, I'm looking forward to checking the book out. Um, I I just remembered now, like I, you've written for the wave. I've written for the wave. You know, we have that in our Venn diagram too. I forgot about that. You know? Yeah, I really enjoyed working with those guys, uh, Mark Healy and Ray Van. They they really do a good job putting putting the paper together, and uh, that's a story that I, I think maybe some of your audience would begin to. If you're into basketball stories, I had a great opportunity, uh, mostly because Mark and Ray provided me with the space to do it. Uh, to write a story about a guy named Neil Edwards, who not a lot of people from New York City know, but he had an interesting story. He played at York College, which is a CUNY D3 school. He was, uh, I guess he was about seven foot, maybe, you know, about that. Short guy. Yeah, not that tall. Uh, didn't have the size for, for basketball. He mm-hmm. wanted to be a jockey. No. Um, he, he played at York College, and he almost snuck into the NBA. He played in the preseason with the Clippers. But kind of in between high school and college, he, was, he had dropped out of school. He was a baggage handler and a sky cap at, at the airport. And um, just a very interesting kind of twist and turns there in that story. That was my favorite story that I did while I was, at the, while I was involved with the Rockaway Wave. Yeah, no, that's awesome, man. Um, listen, I don't want to take too much more of your time. I appreciate you doing this. Before we go, l- plug whatever. Maybe I mentioned it. Maybe I haven't. Let the people know what you got out that you want them to read, that you're interested in. What makes you tick? Even if it's like a random article you came across that has nothing to do with you. <laughs> um, I mean, that, that would be hard to say. I think if you're a writer, you have to read as many newspaper articles as you can in a day. It gets difficult and it, it Stories kind of get redundant, but you should go. I love looking at the Washington Post and seeing what they're doing and seeing if maybe there's something that you could develop. You know, I I also try and write fiction once in a while, too. And um, there's always a way to cultivate ideas. You should read as much as you possibly can. As far as things that I'm doing, uh, listen, out right now in the March 2022 issue of Connecticut Magazine is my story about Danbury Hockey. This is really a teaser of what I hope the book to be about. Um, it's, you know, it's available to read for free online. There's a, there's a link in my Instagram page. Um, there's also a link on my Twitter. Um, also, I've been really busy and I'm excited to say I've been, um, it's just been a great thing the last couple of months. I've been really busy at work for the Hockey News Magazine and if if some hockey fans do get a chance to listen to this, I would recommend subscribing to the magazine. It's, it's, it's really not a huge cost. The magazines come on time. They're beautiful. They're in great condition. When I get to the door and if you love hockey, it, it's irreplaceable. There's a lot of good stuff to read, a lot of good stuff to find out about. These editors there have just been so great uh, working with me and, and, and giving me different opportunities. So, uh, that's been a blessing too. I was a big fan of hockey news as a kid and just to be, you know, a contributor to it at this point is it's really humbling. Anthony. 
That's awesome. I didn't even know the hockey news. I was looking at all your other stuff. You got, you got too many credentials to keep track of, man. Yeah, I like it. it's, it's just <laughs> been going great. Like I said, it's been going great with the hockey news. Uh, and uh, I, I hope to really continue uh, to do some pieces for them because I, uh, I enjoy the work I get to do. Excellent. Well, Matt, thank you so much for doing this. And uh, we will be in touch. And I'm going to look forward to seeing more of your work as it turns out, man. Anthony, thank you so much for having me. Hell yeah. And, uh, and listen, I, uh, I'd like to get together again soon. And, and, and uh, I hope when, I hope you're still doing this podcast when the book comes out, because uh, I'm going to need, I'm going to need your help again. <laughs> I'll have you back. The part two. Thank the you. The Matt man. part two. That's it. All right. That was my conversation with Matt Caputo, man. Thank you to Matt for coming on. Uh, yeah, his audio, you know, we, I was trying to mess him with it. I was trying to mess with it a little bit, but, uh, it's all good. Listen, you know what? He brought a wealth of, uh, knowledge, expertise, fun, anecdotes. Matt, Matt did the thing. I appreciate him coming on to this podcast. He's doing cool, uh, cool work. Look at his stuff on the hockey news. Um, yeah, be on the lookout for his book, read his Connecticut magazine article, uh yeah i mean that's pretty much it you know uh like like usual I, I did the intro and then did a quick overview of the audio uh didn't have to cut anything out look we're we're raw out here you know we're not we're not making cuts unless someone tells me to make a cut and then i will cut but uh i didn't have to cut the wood i didn't have to cut the tree uh, for this audio. Anyway, anyway, anywho. Um, all right, guys, thanks for listening, especially if you got to this point. That's an inside joke with my parents. All right. Um, it's, you know, based on the Macklemore song. It's a whole thing. Uh, we, we, you get it. Um, all right, guys, thank you for tuning in. Low key, it's 53 minutes uh, on the count right now. You know, I'm going to talk another 30 seconds. I want it to be 54 not that it has to be an odd or even number, but 53 is like an ugly number. 54 is a little better. I like 57, 59. Shout out to those odd numbers, but 53 is a little ugly. Uh, not to discriminate on numbers too hard, too hard. But um, yeah, so I'm pretty much just doing a filibuster right now. Um, that is the thing that's happening. Uh, I would say look out for my tour dates for stand-up, but I don't have any of those. That doesn't exist. I'm I'm beyond rookie right now. I'm so I'm so new. I'm I'm months into this thing so i'm not gonna act like i'm anything more than that um but yeah i'm looking forward to my week doing that stuff hopefully tennis and paddle picks up you know you know you know um all right uh yeah okay let's leave it at that guys thank you so much for listening i'm gonna put the music on right after this and uh beautiful have a good night good week good monday if you're listening on a monday and uh go be wonderful 